In this podcast, we have conversations about personal experiences with loss, grief, and unexplained spiritual encounters. Whether it's a dream, a visit, a vision, or a newfound life after loss, we believe life and love never dies. This is Surviving Death and Dying with Trisha and Misty. Hello, everyone. Today, we are talking with Dr. Kenneth J. Doka, who is the Senior Consultant to the Hospice Foundation of America. And as an ordained Lutheran minister, he's also an author who has edited over and authored 24 books and over 100 articles and book chapters. Dr. Doka is also the editor of both Omega, the Journal of Death and Dying, and Journeys, a newsletter for the bereaved. We are so excited to have you on our show today. Welcome, Dr. Noga. I'm delighted and honored to be on. Thank you for being here. Did we miss any credentials that you'd like to add? Well, it's actually now about 40 books. <laughs> Could you tell us what it's like to be the senior consultant to the Hospice Foundation and what your main responsibilities are there? I've just been sort of given a new title of senior vice president for grief programs. Oh, and that wow. basically describes what I do. What I end up doing is I'm involved in our annual conference that we have. I edit the newsletter journeys, the newsletter for health and bereavement. I annually edit a book for them. That's, that's a companion book to our program and all kinds of other stuff related to that. Amazing. Sounds great. It's a great organization and I'm been honored to be a member of it for so long and to be part of it for so long. Yeah. We're, you know, working in the hospice field that takes a special kind of person. So I'm curious to know what actually put you in that path of grief counseling and hospice care and death and dying. Um, it was very much an accident. As a matter of fact, my grandson always jokes with me and my son always jokes with me when I was 10 years old and people said, what are you going to do? Did you say, I want to be in grief? Uh, and of course, the answer was no. Um, <laughs> actually, when I entered graduate school, what I wanted to do was I wanted to work with juvenile delinquents. That was my my interest at the time. And in New York, um, and as part of my training, I had to do as part of my pastoral training, but also related to my sociology work, uh, clinical sociology work at St. Louis U. I was going to the seminary in St. Louis U. at the same time. What happened is that um, that I had to do a CPE, a clinical pastoral experience. And I found the perfect one. I applied in September for the following summer. It was going to be at the Spofford Center. Spofford Center is now closed, but it was essentially a juvenile jail. It was where New York City held its juvenile delinquents who were either had committed such heinous crimes that they, you know, that there'd be a public outrage if they were released uh, prior to trial or where the home was so chaotic that there was no viable place for them to be prior to their trial. So if you wanted the creme de la creme of delinquency, that's where you found it. You know, these, these were the, the real delinquent kids. Um, and it was perfect for what I was interested in. And then a week before, uh, and, you know, and as I said, I was, I was interviewed in November for the job for the following summer. I was accepted in December. And come March, as my friends were scurrying around for a CPA, I could be very superior and say, you should have done this months ago. Uh, I started six months ago. And here's something that Thomas Aquinas didn't even know. When you say things like that, you inevitably get zapped. That's one of the proofs of the existence of God that Aquinas didn't figure out. But, uh, and I got zapped. About a few days before I was to go there in the midst of finals, I got a letter from my super, letter from the Spofford Center. I didn't even open it the first day. 
because I kind of thought, you know, this is going to be one of those, you know, report at this time to this place and bring the following stuff. Uh, when I opened it, my heart sank. It said, guess what? I've changed positions. I'm no longer at uh, Spofford Center. I'm now at Sloan Kettering, which is a major cancer hospital in New York. And you can come with me or be released from your obligation. Well, I absolutely had no interest in going to Sloan Kettering. But at the other hand, there was no option. If I wanted to do it that summer, you know, that's that's what I had to do. Right. So I thought, okay, well, let me do it. And let me, you know, and I'll get through it. And um, it'll be over at least. And uh, and I, as I was driving back to New York from St. Louis, I was thinking, you know, the good thing about this is I've spent a lot of time working with children and adolescents. This will give me a good chance to work with adults. Naturally, when I got there, given my prior experience, I was assigned to the pediatric and adolescent units. So I was dealing with dying children and adolescents. And that was really a, a life-changing experience. At first, I didn't know that I could do that. And one of the ways that you know, I work out my issues is, is in my writing. You know, one of my colleagues jokes that I've never had an unpublished thought. Uh, and that's <laughs> probably right. And so what I ended up doing was I ended up doing, I had to do two master's thesis, one for the seminary, one for St. Louis U. And so the one for St. Louis U was terminal care in two pediatric hospitals. Um, and the other in the seminary was pastoral care to the dying child and his family. And both of them were published in journals. And ultimately, I found myself sort of on the, um, the second generation of people who were doing research in death and dying. And that just became a major focus of interest since then. That was 50 years ago, by the way. Wow, that's crazy. So how was it when you're dealing with the children during that time? Um, well, in first, it was very, very tough, you know, and, uh, and, and of course, when I first walked into Sloan Kettering, um, the playroom, the recreational room was being closed for painting. And so all the kids were in the lobby, um, hanging out in the lobby and you saw amputees and you saw kids bloated by chemotherapy, scarred by operations, uh, emaciated by cancer. Everyone, whether they were on a bed or, or ambulatory or in a wheelchair, was carrying, a, you know, had, a, had an IV bottle attached to them. Um, some of them were bald because of chemotherapy. You know, and, and when I walked in, I, I first thought, uh, you know, as I said, I can't do this. This is, uh, uh, this is just too tough. And, um, and then after a while, you saw beyond that. And you really saw these children as, as children who were struggling, um, many times courageously with a very difficult disease and, and of course their parents. And as I look back on the experience, I've always said, I spent a third of the time counseling with staff, third of the time counseling with parents, third of the time counseling with children. Wow. What an experience. Yeah. It was a life-changing one for me. Missy and I both love your book. Grief is a journey, finding the path through loss. We both agree that this should be a required reading for anybody that has lost somebody in their life. Well, I certainly won't disagree with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's helped me through stuff because I'm still going through a loss right now. So I'm it's sorry. helped me. So thank you for that. Thank you. And I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your loss. Oh, thank you. You know, in this book, I, I love that you start out by differentiating between the myths and the realities of grief, because there are a lot of myths out there. Oh, there very much are. Yeah. And you definitely just spell it out that a lot of people think this, however, this is the reality and it's interesting. 
Thank you. I think people struggle sometimes with thinking they're supposed to be in a certain, you know, they're, they're looking to go through the stages or they think it's supposed to last a certain amount of time. And it, it's not like that. It's very individual, isn't it? Yeah. And often very chaotic, you know, uh, right. Would it be that we had a predictable kind of set of experiences? Uh, most people don't find that. I always like what Schneidman said. Schneidman said we were a hive of affect. You know, that, and you, you get that image, that metaphor of a bunch of emotions, emotions buzzing around in our head. But I would even go further and say it, it's a hive of reactions, some of which are emotions, some of which are thoughts, some of which are behaviors, you know, all, all buzzing around with us. Yeah. And, and that is interesting. All these different experiences you're talking about from the physical and the emotional effects on our own thought process. My favorite of those you talked about were the extraordinary experiences. And I believe you also recently wrote a book called When We Die that addresses those yeah. different experiences. So what do you mean? Tell our listeners what you mean by extraordinary experiences. What we mean by that is that, you know, that again, over time, there are all kinds of things that you experience when you're at the edge of, of you know, what I call the edge of forever, the edge of life both in the dying process and in the, in the grief process. So some of them we're very familiar with, you know, we all know about and have heard about near-death experiences. Others are what we call nearing death awareness, which when I talk about that, most people will identify with that as well. And that's where the person who is dying sort of communicates the imminence of their own death, often in very oblique and metaphorical ways. So for instance, they might say something like, um, you know, yesterday, here's somebody who's quite ill, and, and they're saying, you know, yesterday, I, I had a great conversation with grandma, and you're thinking, grandma's been dead for 35 years, you know, what, you know, maybe we have to smoke morphine, <laughs> or, uh, and people do actually think yeah, that, yeah. you know, or another kind of experience that people have is that they have, they talk about travel, so again, you have somebody who's bedbound saying, I've got to catch a plane, I've got to pack. Um, or sometimes people just sense death. Uh, when my father was dying in hospice, he all of a sudden woke up one morning and said, am I dying? Now, he wasn't asking, do I have a terminal disease that's going to kill me? He knew that. He knew he was in hospice care. He understood that. It was, he was talking about something far more imminent. And he died, you know, that uh, in, really early in the next morning, oh, wow. uh, yeah. you know, uh, in sleep. And so you have those kinds of experiences. You have terminal lucidity. Terminal lucidity is where somebody um, is, is quite ill or maybe has dementia or maybe has intellectual disabilities. And all of a sudden, they gain lucidity in the last minutes of their life. And, uh, and they come back, maybe in ways that they never were before. The first case reported was a woman in Germany who was severely, we would call a woman with severe intellectual disabilities, but you know, uh, in those days, it was called severely retarded. And all of a sudden, um, she had never spoken in her life. And all of a sudden, she popped up on her bed and sang a coherent hymn that dealt with the dying process, with wow. her own dying, uh, about being in heaven and the like. And that experience was so significant to the chaplain and the doctor who witnessed it, that they actually opposed Hitler's, at, at, you know, at great potential cost attempt to to murder people who were you know to euthanize people that's a good word for murdering people who had intellectual disabilities so it really became a transforming experience for them and of course you have experiences after death you know um, 
sensing the person's presence, having a sense experience of that person, dreams, you know, all kinds of experiences. So it's a book that that kind of addresses all of these issues and others too, like just coincidences around death and, you know, and uh, premonitions around death, you know, fascinating coincidences. One of mine is Robert Todd Lincoln, the son of Abraham Lincoln, was present at all three presidential assassinations or soon after in in the 19th uh in the 1900s um so he was he was you know rushed to the theater to be with his father when his father was shot saw garfield get assassinated saw uh mckinley get assassinated teddy roosevelt invited him over for an affair and he said uh, i'm going to decline bad things happen when i'm in the presence of presidents so uh, <laughs> but then even more interesting is that when robert todd lincoln was a student uh, he was waiting in a train station and, you know, and he was pushed forward and would have fallen in front of a train, except a hand reached out and grabbed him and pulled him back. Wow. And he recognized the hand because the man was a famous actor, Edwin Booth. Oh, wow. Whose brother would assassinate his father, ultimately. That is interesting. Yeah. Edwin later said that gave him some comfort that, you know, because he never agreed politically with his brother, right. um, John Wilkes Booth. And but he said it gave him some comfort to know that that he had rescued one Lincoln, even as his brother had killed another. And that's that's really fascinating because it sounds like your book, When We Die, would give some people hope. I mean, we can't eliminate their grief, but we could bring them hope with these types of stories. Sure. You know, and, it, and, and, and you know, and as I said, you know, it certainly says maybe there is something after. Right. You know, I naturally believe that, you know, and, and as I said, I, you know, in, in the book, I mentioned, you know, these experiences as I recount them and the book I like to think is well-researched and has been commented on being well-researched, you know, has over 200 footnotes, somebody reviewer pointed out, which I didn't even know, but the fact remains that, that how can we say this? Um, you know, these experiences don't always fit in well with my own theology. They don't always fit in well with my scientific orientation. And you can certainly differ on what you think these experiences mean, but you cannot deny that these experiences happen. Right. Whether, you know, like whether a near-death experience is some way of the body trying to, you know, release chemicals to reduce the shock or, or something else, we can argue that. Right. But we can't argue that there, you know, it's a well-accepted fact that people have these experiences. We can differ in interpretation. We can't differ in the reality that, that they're experienced. Absolutely. That's a good point. And, you know, we may talk a little bit more about that in a minute. One of the things I, I think you also say in that same section is with these different types of effects it has on us, people all react differently and that there are some kind of normal expectations, but there's also yellow and red flags and what to look out for That's a great, yeah. and understanding the process and what available support is out there. And to those people or to people who might be grieving and, you know, what should they really look out for or for someone they know? Well, you know, as I said, there, um, I mean, there are clear red flags, you know, grief is very variable. People grieve in very different ways. Um, one of my mentors, Earl Grohman, used to say, grief is as, as unique as fingerprints. You know, we, we all have our own way of grieving. However, clearly there are things we, we, want to, uh, we want to be very clear about. You know, obviously, if you're self-destructive, if you're destructive toward others, if you're engaging in risky behaviors, 
drinking too much, you know, anesthetizing your pain through drugs, either prescription, abuse of prescription drugs or, or other things. These are clearly red flags that say you need help. If you're depressed, if you can't function, uh, you know, all of us don't function well at first, or many of us, most of us don't function well at first. But, you know, if weeks go by and you still can't get out of bed or you're still really not functioning at work or at school or in one way or another, those are all danger signs that say, I want to seek somebody out. Oh, very well said. So we're going to go into the next part where we're dealing with the different types of loss that we have in our life from spouses to parents and children and adult siblings. Sure. I had up, like I was saying earlier, I had that personal connection with your book, of, especially with your parents and how you lost yours. My mom died of an illness and my dad passed away of a sudden heart attack. I have that same feeling of what you were going through. Okay. And in my case, just for the, it was reversed with my mother who died suddenly and my father who died of an illness. Right. Yeah. So how did you work through the loss of your parent yourself? You know, I'm kind of an instrumental griever. So I, I grieve a lot by doing and I did both funerals. That was important for me to conduct both funerals as a clergyman, you know, and, and that was a way of expressing my grief. I shared a lot of memories. That was very important for me. That was one of the ways that I dealt with by, by sharing memories and sharing thoughts about it. And, uh, you know, I, I think those were some of the key ways that I dealt with it. That, that's great. Yeah. And also dealing with the loss of a child, I think would probably be one of the most difficult things as a parent to deal with and have that thought even in the back of their mind that they might lose a child due to an illness or an accident. What would you say to a family who has lost a child or is about to lose a child due to an illness or from an accident? How can I help? What's, you know, uh, what are you experiencing? Certainly I would try to avoid any platitudes, you know, he'll, uh, he or she will be in heaven, you know, uh, they'll be at peace now. You know, these are usually not helpful comments. But I try to offer myself and I try to say, and, and one of the things I always advise and I, I advise in the book, Grief is a Journey, is that don't just offer general help. Don't just say, if I can do anything, you know, please call on me, but offer specific help. You know, if you want, I can pick up, let's say uh, you're dealing with a sickness of anybody really in the house. You know, I can pick up Tommy every day when we go to basketball, you know, or from basketball, you know, my son's on the same team. And, you know, we can do that. Be specific in what you can offer. Would you like me to come over and, and bring a meal tomorrow? You know, would you like me, me to do this? General comments usually get general responses. Right. I like the one part in there where one of the stories is where there was a spouse and then there was a widower there. Yeah. And the widower gave her a key saying, I know you'll be lonely come whenever you want. And that just was like heartfelt. That almost brought me to tears. That was just. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful story and so true. And, and I think I say in the book, if not, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an exclusive if I did say it in the book. But the, the, the widow just told me she never used the key. You know, the woman, this was a, a woman who just lost her husband. Uh, she had a neighbor who she was in a kind of hello relationship. Whenever she passed, they'd wave, but they, they really weren't close. You know, they really, she was much older. And when this woman came to the funeral, she pressed a key in her hand and said, darling, this is a key to my house. There are going to be nights. You don't want to be alone. Don't be. Come here. And she said, I never used it, 
but I was two years into my next marriage before I gave it back. Because <laughs> it was like a talisman to me. Right. Uh, and 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 a security. And by the way, they they became very warm friends. She never did go over late at night, but they, they became very good friends. I think that was is just one of the better gestures to somebody because you can't just say, I'm here for you. You have to be yeah, yeah. show how you're going to be there for that person during the loss. And this person simply, certainly did. That was amazing. And the next part is losing a sibling, especially an adult sibling, most likely when our parents are gone and everything else. I know I'll be devastated because I'm the the youngest of my family of four. Okay. I don't know how I'm going to react when I lose, like say my, the last sibling to go. How would I move forward in that kind of loss? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I think let's talk about the, the sibling relationship and let's talk about the problem with losing a sibling. And then maybe I can get to answer your question. You know, the sibling relationship is unique. Um, it, for one, it's usually the longest relationship we have in our lives. Um, I'm going to have lunch with my sister tomorrow. We do that periodically halfway between our houses. You know, she lives in Pennsylvania. I live in New York, about two hours from one house to the other. So we meet ironically in a place called Middletown in New York, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which seems strangely symbolic, but actually right in the middle of our locations. And I've known my sister for all of my 73 years. She's known me for all for 73 of her 81 years. We have no other relationship. Um, that is as longstanding as that. Uh, most of us don't. You know, most of us know our siblings longer than we knew know our parents. Longer than you know, my son's almost fifty. Uh, you know, I've known him for those years, but you know, but doesn't hit the three quarter mark. And the second thing is, the sibling relationship is unique in the family system because most family relationships are pretty hierarchical. You know, you listen to your dad, you listen to your mom, you argue with your siblings. Right. You know, it's a more equal relationship. And then thirdly, siblings share perceptions of events that nobody else may know about or experience. So when I say to her, do you remember how Aunt B's house smelled? You know, she knows that. Other times I'm trying to define something undefinable to people, but she gets that right away. Right. However, you know, when, an, and when, it, you know, when, when you're 14 and your 16-year-old sibling dies, everybody knows you need help. But when you're 76 and your 78-year-old sibling dies, you know, attention is often paid to the family, to the children, to the grandchildren. And so in some ways, your your loss is disenfranchised. So, uh, you know, I think the first thing I would say to you when that happens is, is own your grief, validate your grief. Yeah, you have a right to this. You're going to be there for your, you know, maybe your sister-in-law or brother-in-law. You're going to be there for your nieces and nephews. But this is also your loss. And acknowledge that it's your loss and take care of yourself in whatever way works for you. Right. That sounds, yeah. I know I would need to do that because me and my brother are the the youngest brother just above me. We're the closest together. And then the two oldest are closer. I don't know. My my mind just goes like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? But I can see that I, I have to take care of me. Yeah. And not, not, not worry about anybody else, but. Yeah, this is a loss that affects you too. And um, I'm trying to think, I just can't think of the author, but um, I know it's listed in the book, but one author wrote that, you know, you can look at sibling relationships as sort of being a kind of plane, you know, uh, that's crossed by two lines, two dimensions. And one dimension is distance. 
are you distant from the relationship or are you uh, very close? And then the other is an emotional one. Are you, uh, is your relationships positive or negative? And you can have any combination. You know, you can have uh, a negative close relationship, like two people, you know, two brothers who are fighting all the time. When my son was younger, he had two friends a year apart and he was friends with both of them. But the rule was you could only have one of them stay over at a time <laughs> because the mother said, I wouldn't do that to anybody because the two of them together would, you know, just be battling, you know, so you can have the younger one, you can have the older one, but he couldn't have both at the same time, you know, and, and, and you can have relationships that are close and distant. You know, I really love my so-and-so, but I don't get to see them that often. They live in another country, in another state. And then you can have relationships that are hostile and distant. I haven't spoken to my brother in seven years, and that's fine with me. Or relationships that are, you know, that are close and intimate, you know, pretty much like my relationship with my sister. You know, we speak on the phone a few times a week. We get together every once in a while. We're really very compatible. She was like, when I was younger, she was like a second mother. There you go. Well, and, and you just touched on something I thought was interesting. I'd never thought about, but that whole category of disenfranchised grief yeah, and, and all the different types of relationships that, that fall into that. I found that really fascinating. Could you speak a little more to the types? Yeah. And, and, you know, and what that means is as, as humans, we bond to all kinds of people and things. And sometimes when we have a loss, it's not always acknowledged by others, you know, it may be, um, my first research was on ex-spouses. What happens when your ex-spouse dies? And many people, surpri- and often surprisingly to them, said, you know, this caused me a profound sense of grief that nobody seemed to acknowledge because, you know, for 10 years I was calling him the cheating rat, you know, but, but this was still, you know, uh, still a person who I had a relationship with, I had children with, you know, so it could be a relationship is not recognized, could be a loss is not acknowledged. You know, we have animal companions that we love. I'm surprised mine's not hopping up to see you guys right now. (laughs) Usually she does that. She's a cat. (laughs) She would correct me and say a Siamese cat. Um, uh, (laughs) Just for the record. And my daughter-in-law got it for me. So, you know, so it has a couple of different issues. You know, it was my daughter-in-law decided you live longer with pets. So she, she got me a Siamese cat. She wants you to live long. That's a good sign. Yeah, that is. That is. I think it just seems longer when you have a pet, uh, but no, I'm only kidding. Yeah. <laughs> they make you feel older. <laughs> no, they just make you busier. Yeah, that's true. But the other thing is, you know, so we have those losses that aren't always acknowledged. You know, some right. of them we're better on now, like perinatal loss, um, but we're better for mothers. We're not necessarily better for fathers. You know, I've had fathers come in who have experienced their wife's miscarriage and they say, everybody asked me how my wife is doing, but nobody says, how am I doing? Uh, you know, uh, sometimes grievers who aren't recognized, persons with dementia, the very young, the very old, uh, sometimes the, the ways people grieve, you know, so all of those factors can be disenfranchising. You know, I'm, I'm wondering after last year being such a unique year with the quarantine shutdown, COVID, if you feel like there might be some new and different types of grief or disenfranchised grief, what you're expecting out of that. Okay, well, what I'm expecting, I've written about about is I'm expecting um, a follow-up pandemic on complicated grief. 
because I think we've experienced all kinds of losses that have been, you know, and, and it was just interesting. You mentioned that uh, the New York Times had a fascinating article uh, a few months, uh, about a month ago, where they talked about the disenfranchised grief and talked to me about it. But the disenfranchised grief that was experienced during the thing when so many people who had the everyday losses that were so common, maybe losing income, losing em- employment, losing this, losing that. Um, they had all these losses that were not common, but at the same point in time, you know, they they often felt they couldn't talk about them because you know other people were were had had deaths, you know. So how can you talk about the fact that you didn't have a graduation or you didn't have a prom, you know? But these everyday losses that that were cumulative. My uh, my granddaughter graduated from eighth grade from a parochial school last year. Uh, and, you know, she had been looking forward for eight years for the, you know, all the events, the senior trip, the graduation, you know, the, the senior dance, all these events that were milestones. And, uh, and while well, they ultimately had a, a sort of a stripped down graduation, none of the other events occurred. Yeah, my son, uh, well, all three of my kids are college age. So they've been affected in that, try, you know, here they are in their beginning of their adult lives, looking forward to being out there and on their own and getting jobs in their field. And that kind of, you know, has been delayed. And so I'm seeing different emotional struggles that they're having, you know, to, to, and I'm trying to help them cope with it. We're all still under one roof right now, but I definitely see, you know, a different struggle. And I have to always remind them and recognize the fact that, look, last year was not normal, was different for everyone. And yes, you're, you feel behind, but it's not your fault. It was just, you know, it's what happened. It's what life dealt us. Very much so. The meaningful rituals. I know they're very important in the dealing with grief. How meaningful is that the funeral ritual? And how would you create a meaningful ritual as well? Well, I, I think there are two issues you're raising here. And one is how do you make a funeral more effective and, and more therapeutic? And I think the answer is to provide opportunities for personalizing the funeral, opportunities for people to participate in if they wish to do so, you know, to be readers, to, to do this, you know, maybe bringing in other people, to, you know, so you're what I call widening the circle. You know, if an adolescent died, for instance, maybe talking with some of her friends about what kind of ways they would want, think they want to memorialize her. Then I think the second thing you're talking about is what we call therapeutic ritual. And therapeutic ritual is a ritual you design uh, to achieve some kind of, uh, you know, therapeutic goal, either to reaffirm the continuing bond or to finish business. And it's hard to say what are some of the principles, because the basic principle is it has to be unique to the situation. I always say the ritual has to fit the story and move the story on. One of the rituals I talk about in the book is a woman who, and I speak about almost any time I speak about ritual, is a woman who wanted to remove her wedding ring a few years after the death of her spouse. And it was very significant to her. She had put it on, she was Catholic. She had put it on in a Catholic ceremony where, um, you know, it was forever as far as she was concerned. Uh, till, Till death do us part, they took very seriously. And then her husband, who was a very strong guy, developed a life limiting illness, uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And as he weakened and, you know, and caregiving became such a burden on both of them, you know, that's the dirty secret about caregiving. It's not easy to provide care, but no adult likes to be dependent 
that they have to receive that level of care, you know? And uh, every night when her husband and her got into bed, they would put their hands together so their rings touched and they repeat oh. their wedding vows in sickness and in health and good times and in bad. And then, um, so when we took off our wedding ring, uh, we decided to have a ritual to take it off where she went back to the church and the, the priest at the same church in which she's married, not the same priest, he had long gone, but the priest asked the questions in past tense. Were you faithful in sickness and in health? And she said, you know, I, I was in the presence of her family and friends to affirm it. Uh, and he said, may I have the ring, please? And she said, the ring came off as if by marriage. And the priest took the rings, inter, you know, interlocked them and welded to the frame of the wedding picture uh, as a vow now complete. Now, you know, it's a powerful ritual, probably the most powerful I was ever involved in. But at the same point in time, you don't want to, you know, stand up in a group of widows and say, okay, all you widows who have wedding rings, follow me up to the chapel. You know, that would not be good. They, they have to be, they have to match the story. That's a beautiful one that I read as well. I love that r- ritual that they did. It gave me chills again right now. So here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is a powerful ritual. And as I said, I was honored to be part of that. What a story. The next part that I was going to go into is the self-help is not enough. Okay. Um, When somebody's dealing with grief and they keep telling themselves they're fine, how does one know when to seek help and how do they seek that help? Where do they go to find it? Because I know with me, when I dealt with my, when my mom was the first parent to pass away from me, when she passed away, I kept on telling my everybody, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, no worries, I'm good. And then I realized when I had a breakdown that I needed to get that help and I had to seek it. So I had went out and found it. Mm-hmm. What would you have tell people? Well, I, I think if you think you do, you probably do, number one. Um, you know, or, or at least it's worth talking to somebody to, to assess that. Uh, number two, as I said, if you're thinking of hurting yourself, if you're thinking of hurting others, that's if you're doing destructive behaviors, that clear, that's, those are clear signs. If you're not functioning well in, in your major roles within a few weeks after the loss, that's, those are signs. How would one seek that help? How would you tell them how to find that help? I think probably one of the best places to go is to go to ADEC, the Association for Death Education and Counseling check out to see who's, you know, they can probably recommend people to you. That would be my first shot. Other places you might go or to go to, you know, call the local hospice bereavement program, see who they recommend for counseling. Often big funeral homes will have the names of of potential counselors. So, you know, so you can find them in a lot of different ways. But my first notion would be to go to ADEC, uh, the Association for death education and counseling, because they do have lists of people who have been certified in grief. Amazing. Okay, perfect. And there's one thing in your book that I I really loved was the imprints exercise in the book. Can you go over that with for the listeners? As I think that's a very important part to be working through a loss. What this is, it just is a reminder and what really what it speaks to is one of the ways that our notion of grief has changed. And years ago, when we talked about grief, we tended to talk about it as a time-bound process. And what I meant by that, you know, it's like an illness. You get sick, you get over it. You're better now. Freud, for example, a little over 100 years ago, 
uh, what I call the beginning of the modern study of grief in Freud's article on mourning and melancholia, said that ultimately the goal is of, of grief is to war- withdraw emotional energy from the person who died and reinvest it in others. You know, so you're, you know, I have so much energy invested in you and now I'm going to, you know, pass it on to other people. And that idea was prevalent for really a long time and then started being challenged about 20, 30 years ago, where now we hold to a continuing bond. You know, a lot of people did work on this, but probably one of the primary ones was, was Dennis Kloss, uh, Phyllis Silverman and Nickman. And what they, what they do in that book and, and what was significant is they talk about the fact we live with loss. Uh, that's why I call grief as a journey. You know, it's nothing we get, you know, and, and even years later, it's not unusual to, to have surges of grief. You may be six, year old when, six years old when your dad dies. 20 years later, what happens is that you're walking down the aisle and maybe your brother's on your side or maybe your uncle's on your side or your stepdad or your mom or, you know, whoever it is. And all of a sudden you realize at that moment, I really miss my dad even in the midst of a happy occasion. That's not unusual. Matter of fact, one of the things I do in grief counseling is to talk about these moments because sometimes people get thrown by them later on, you know? And I say, you know, there's gonna be times that you're gonna really miss that person. What might some of those times be? Just so it's not a surprise. So anyway, what this life imprints is an attempt to say, you know, the people who died are, are part of us. They have their impact on us. Here's my, my everyday list of things to do. I haven't crossed out some things that should be crossed out yet because I've done them. But every day I make a color-coded list of things to do. Uh, my dad used to keep a list. You know, it's an imprint. And a number of years ago, I, I realized whenever I go to the airport, I get my shoe shined. And then I thought about that. And I said, you know, every Sunday, one of my best memories with my dad is after church, we'd go up to the shoe shine place up on the avenue and we get our shoe shines. That was just a, a nice father-son moment. And then, you know, I thought this is probably connected to that. You know, it's one of those imprints. So we all have those imprints in our life. Yeah, I love that. Cause I'm, I'm looking back to see what I'm doing from the loss of both of my parents. And if I've picked up some of their imprints of what they did and one of them for me was the breakfast every morning, like yeah. on the weekends, so I picked up that ritual, even I'm going by myself, but yeah. I picked up that ritual. So I love these imprints. Yeah. And, and I have a godson whose dad died the day, uh, day before his fourth birthday. So I've had a big role in his life. He's now in his thirties, but it would always amaze me and his mother both that, you know, there were just certain mannerisms he had and certain ways of looking, you know, smiling that just were, you know, that just were imprints of his dad. And not even that he spent much time with him because his dad was ill for a lot of that time. But it was fascinating to see that. That's neat. What do you think? And you've got a lot of experience, of course, obviously with death. And But I'm curious to know what exact events have really shaped your own personal spiritual and afterlife beliefs, or if there's any, you know, fun, compelling, or, you know, most inspirational and touching stories that you may have. Well, you know, certainly I believe in an afterlife very, very strongly. And certainly I've had some of those extraordinary experiences we talk about and I share in the book When We Die. And as I said, they don't always fit easily into my theology, but they're kind of intriguing. My godson Keith, father's last wish to me, more of a command was, you know, take care of my son when I die, you're his godfather. You know, and I tried to do that and I like to think I did that. 
And uh, we still have a good close relationship, even though he's in his 30s now. And one of the things that happened is, you know, I used to always take him on family vacations with us. And one day we were in the Bahamas and we were having a phenomenal vacation. He was having the time of his life. And one day I just decided to walk on the beach just after dinner, you know, just to get a little exercise after a big dinner. And as I walked on the beach, I can only describe the experience where I felt that every cell in my body was being individually hugged. There's no other way to describe that experience. Oh, that's cool. I felt it was my my friend saying, you know, thank you. You know, Keith's 10 now. You, you're keeping your promise to me. I, I see that. But there was a sadness to it, too, because I, yeah. I, I thought he... It was almost kind of a valedictory experience that I'm, I have to leave now, you know, or I'm content to leave now. And so that was probably one of my most powerful experiences. Oh, wow. That is, I, I've never heard it put that way, but um, I could definitely relate to that. And I think, you know, a lot of people out there, they can't question those feelings. They just need to accept them if they yeah. have that. It's just recognize and accept that what a gift that is. Yeah, and I considered it a great gift. And I considered it a sad gift because I considered it also a goodbye. Right. I am curious. You mentioned your father being on hospice. Did he, I, I was wondering if there was more to that story or if he told you more, you asked him more, or if you just let it go. What With the dying situation, as I said, he woke up one day saying, am I dying? Am I dying? You know, mom called me up. My mother called me up. We all took turns taking care of him during the week. My Ida. At that time, my older brother, who has since died, was was alive, and we, uh, you know, and and so I got on the phone with him. I said, "Dad, you know, what's going on? Are you feeling okay? Are you feeling in any pain?" He said, "I'm just feeling different. I'm not feeling in any pain." I said, "Would you like us to come over?" So I think my my sister was watching him that day. My brother and I came back to the house. We spent the day. We did a lot of reminiscing, and then at night he said, "I'm feeling better, and I think I want to go to bed." And why don't you guys go to your rooms? And he died later that night. Mm -hmm. And you know, my sister always felt bad because she said we should have stayed with him. And I said, "No, I think he needed us to go. I think yeah. he needed to. I think he needed us there, but I don't think he needed us there when he actually died. Um, and um, but I think he died very peacefully." We all share, you know, it was a perfect death in many ways. We all shared our love for him. Uh, we all shared stories with him, you know, favorite stories from our childhood. I was the youngest uh, by far. You know, I was 13 years younger than my brother and eight years younger than my sister. Yeah. And my father said to me, he said, I always felt bad that I never took you to a ball game. And I said, Dad, I hated to go to ball games. I said, when I do your eulogy, I'm going to thank you for never making me go to a ball game. Uh, and he got a big laugh out of that, you know. and. And I told him the things that he did do that were very important to me, you know, little things. And, and then I also told him that one day when I was a teenager, my friends took me to, you know, wanted me to go with them to a ball game. They never shared with me. It was a Twilight doubleheader, which I never <laughs> would have gone to. And it also ended up in the record books as having 36 innings after oh which the rules were changed. The first game went 10 innings. The second game went 26 innings. Oh my my goodness. friends, I am sure, only stayed because I was captive. Oh and you thought it was the funniest thing in the world. They were just torturing you. That's <laughs> it, was just, it was just torture. That's hilarious. Some people, when they die, they're all individual too. They they either don't want anyone around so they can let go yeah. or they let go when people are around. And that's a very different, unique experience as well. Yeah. I used to have a professor, Constantino Sevilius Rothschild at Wayne State from uh, Greece or something. 
she'd always look at her class and say, I can tell each of you how you're going to die. Oh. With that kind of voice, it sounded like the crystal was coming out, the crystal ball. Yeah. And then, and then she'd say, look at the way you handle crisis. And the way you handle crisis is the way you'll handle life-threatening illness. Interesting. You know, you know if you're angry, you're going to be angry when you're dying. My brother-in-law was the sweetest guy on the face of the earth. And I predicted how he would die. He was sweet and he was loving and he was just had this sense, like if I said, if I came back from a trip and he said, Kenny, how was the trip? And I'd say, uh, it was, we had a lot of turbulence. He'd look at me and say, I'm really sorry. And I would joke with him. I'd say, why? Did you cause the turbulence? Is there you know, some powers that I'm not aware of? Right. <laughs> you know, and I said, he's going to apologize. His last words were essentially apologizing for, you know, the work, the illness offered to his wife and his, and his children. He died as he lived, sweetly, apologetically. Wow. <laughs> Constantinos Civilius Rothschild was right. You know, how we traditionally handle crisis, assuming we don't get, you know, it hasn't changed through therapy or something is probably how we'll handle the crisis of life-threatening illness. Yeah, very interesting. Some of us want to be with others. Some of us want to be alone in crisis. What final words do you have for our listeners who are dealing with loss in their life right now? Well, I think the first thing is accept it, validate it, acknowledge that we, we you know, that maybe find the people you need who will help you process it and share it. They may be confidants. They may be friends. Maybe they may need to be formal sources of support like grief groups or counselors. But I think the thing is recognize, you know, one of my colleagues, uh, Colin Murray Parks, really one of the fathers of grief studies, had the comment, grief is the price we pay for love. And I think that's a, that's an important message. If you don't want to grieve, I can tell you how not to grieve. Never get attached, never love anything or anyone, and you'll never have this experience. And that's impossible for most human beings, so... <laughs> And, and probably is not the way we want to live. Yeah, no, definitely not. So if our listeners wanted to contact you, how would they do that? They can go to my webpage. So www.drkendoka.com. Perfect. And thank you for being here today. It's been amazing to hear your stories and your books are just, I can't wait to read more of your books. Now I want to get the whole collection. <laughs> uh, many of them are clinical, but the two, the two that are really made for lay readers our grief is a journey and when we die. That sounds good. Well, we'll add your website and links to your books and our show notes. And again, thank you so much for taking this time. It's been wonderful. Thank you. I just, this hour just passed so quickly. I really appreciated it. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at trisha.misty.tm at gmail.com. You can also go to our website, survivingdeathanddying.com, for links to the books we talk about. So please like, share, subscribe, and follow. Well, we did it again. We survived death and dying. Another episode. Because we believe life and love never dies.